Welcome to Common Ground Church Rondebosch, a community based in Cape Town, South Africa, who believe that if Jesus is who he says he is, that changes everything. Our sermon podcast aims to unpack this reality rooted in scripture and dependent on God's spirit. Our Encountering Jesus series explores significant interactions that people had with Jesus in the New Testament. We see through these encounters just how deep His compassion is, witness His power and gentleness, and how encountering Him changes lives. Please continue listening for today's message. Good evening, Church. Today's reading comes from Mark 8, verses 22 to 38. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. It is a joy and a privilege uh, to be able to start this new teaching series in the life of common ground that we have entitled Encountering Jesus. For the next uh, quarter, we are gonna have our hearts and minds focused on Jesus, and more particularly focused on how Jesus interacts with individuals, individuals with different needs, different backgrounds, and different questions. And as we work our way through different gospel accounts, what we are gonna discover this term is that Jesus meets with people personally. He meets with them powerfully and he meets with them counterintuitively. This is gonna be a fantastic series. 
If you are here this evening and you are looking into the claims of Christ, this is the perfect series for you because you are gonna be able to investigate Jesus firsthand and unfiltered. If you're here this evening and you're new to the Christian faith, there honestly couldn't be a better series uh, for you to start your Christian journey on because there's nothing more foundational than seeing who Jesus is and how he interacts with others. And if you're here this evening and uh, you're a Christian, but if you're honest, your love for the Lord has actually waned a bit. We as a pastoral team can think of nothing better than for all of us really to sit at the feet of Jesus in order for our love for him to be rekindled. If you're a seasoned Christ follower here this evening, I, I don't need to pitch to you, right? You, you can't wait for the series to start. So let's dive in. We're looking at this account in Mark chapter eight and I wanna look at it under three headings, an encounter, an exchange, and a foundation. And Encounter, an exchange, and a foundation. Let's begin with an encounter. In verse 22, we're told that Jesus and his disciples arrive at a village called Bethsaida. And the moment they arrive, some people come up to meet them. My wife, Anna, grew up in the south coast of England in a town called Brighton. Uh, and on occasion in the town that she grew up in, an Indian guru would come to town and hire a hall or an auditorium. And they would hire that so that their followers uh, could come. And when their followers came, it wouldn't be unusual for them to bring flowers or notes or trinkets to honor the guru. But what is interesting when you read the gospels, uh, you find that when Jesus walked the earth, uh, people didn't bring flowers and notes and trinkets to Jesus. They brought the, the dying and the deaf and the blind. And that, that's what we see happening right here in Mark chapter eight. You see Jesus arrives at this town and immediately some friends bring a blind person to Jesus and they beg Jesus to touch him and to heal him. Now this is, if you're a friend and you're bringing your friend to Jesus, that's a good thing. If you're one of those guests here this evening because some friend said, hey, come along to church, your friend's doing a good thing. It's a good thing to come into the presence of the Lord. And yet I want us for a moment to consider what this would have been like for this blind guy. You've got some friends who rock up and they get super enthusiastic and they want to take you to see this guy who's kind of like a carpenter from Nazareth who kind of prays for sick people and, and they're super excited, but you're not that sure. And so you're going to see somebody who you don't really know and you haven't met and you, you, you don't know what's gonna happen. It's actually a very uncomfortable moment. But, but, but not only is this uncomfortable, it becomes very awkward very quickly because you see, they introduce you to this guy and this guy takes you by the hand and begins to lead you outside of the village. And, and you don't know where you are now, you're with a complete stranger, you, you're completely disorientated, this is super awkward, and the next thing you hear is <laughs> This guy spits in your face. Now, I don't care what culture you come from, if somebody spits in your face, it is like mega offensive, right? Like, what is going on here? Verse 23 says, and he spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him and asked him, do you see anything? But before this guy has any opportunity to get offended, he, he, he kind of, he, his eyes kind of stop moving and he begins to look and he noticed that, that, that actually he can see something. And in verse 24 it says, he looked up and said, I, I, I see people. 
They, they look like trees walking. He, he's, he is partially healed. And then Mark tells us then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he's opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Friends, this is a remarkable moment. This guy wakes up blind, but by the end of the day, his sight is completely restored. Yes, Jesus spits on his face, unusual. We don't know why he does it. Jesus heals other blind people without spitting in their face, but there's some reason here why Jesus needed to spit on this guy's face, but he doesn't care because he's gone from being completely blind to partially restored, to being fully healed. This is incredible. And Jesus tells him to go home, not to go back into the village, but to go straight home. We're not told in the text whether this man was born blind, but I think it's a fair assumption that he could have been born blind. And can you imagine when he goes home? There's a strong possibility that he is seeing his mother and father for the very first time. Friends, this is incredible. This guy just wakes up one day, unaware of what's gonna happen. It's a day like any other day. He is completely blind, utterly dependent on other people. All of a sudden, his friends get super excited. They wanna take him to a gig, and he's like, oh man, I'm not sure, I don't know if I should do this. Jesus prays for him, partially healed. Jesus prays for him again, fully healed. This is absolutely incredible. If you speak to people who care for blind people, they'll tell you blind people are utterly dependent on other people. In a single moment, this guy encounters Jesus Christ and his life is utterly transformed. He moves from being dependent on others to being able uh, to live a normal life. It is truly remarkable. So firstly, an encounter. Secondly, an exchange. What happens next in Mark chapter eight is that there is a reenactment, if you like, of the events that have just transpired. Just like Jesus took this blind man to a secluded place for the purpose of clarifying their vision, so Jesus takes his disciples to a secluded place for the purpose of clarifying their vision. We are told that they go from Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi, and on the way in that journey in a private space, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? If you study the Gospel of Mark, you'll know that there, there are two main themes that run through this Gospel. The one is, who is Jesus? And the second is, how do people respond to him? Who is Jesus? What is his identity? And how do people respond to that? And right here in Mark chapter eight, it is a crunch moment where this identity of Jesus becomes front and center. In a secluded place with his disciples, Jesus says, well, who do other people think that I am? And then he hones in right on them. And what about you? Who do you say that I am? It's an absolutely critical question for the disciples to answer. It's actually a critical question for all of us to answer. This is actually a defining moment in the gospel of Mark. N.T. Wright says, if we correctly discern Christ's identity here, then we can look back at the first eight chapters and we can make sense of it. And we can look forward from Caesarea Philippi to Jerusalem and work out the events that are taking place in its proper significance. 
But just like today where there's multiple voices around who Jesus really is, so it was in Jesus' day. People knew that Jesus was powerful in word and deed, like one of the prophets. They knew that he he was somebody special, but they stopped short of his true identity. They said, oh, well, he's he's kind of like John the Baptist. He's kind of like Elijah. he's, He's like one of the other prophets. But Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, hits the nail on the head. He says, you are the Christ. You are the long-awaited Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the anointed one to be king, the king to end all kings, the true king, the king who's gonna put everything right, the king who is in fact God himself. Friends, if you're here this evening and you think that essentially the Christian story is about a good guy who did good things and then some bad things happened to him, I wanna suggest to you that you need the Holy Spirit to open up the eyes of your heart. Because friends, when we open the Bible, what we discover is that Jesus isn't just an ordinary man. He's not just a good teacher who did did good things. He didn't just have like a, a side kind of healing ministry. No, 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 no. The Bible tells us that Jesus is nothing less than God himself. God has become flesh to dwell amongst us for the purpose of saving and rescuing us. And friends, it is critical that we understand Jesus's true identity. If we get who Jesus is, that he's God who's become flesh and dwelt amongst us, it will give a profound weighting to what he has actually done up until this point in the Gospel of Mark, and it will give a profound weighting to what is yet to transpire. Confuse the identity of Jesus and you confuse everything. But the disciples have finally discerned his true identity. Jesus actually says, flesh and blood haven't revealed this to you. It's something that the Holy Spirit has revealed to them. They finally got Jesus' true identity. But friends, getting the true identity of Jesus is like going from being blind to being partially sighted. Now, if you are fully blind and then partially sighted, it's a massive deal. There are tons of things that you can do because you're partially sighted that you couldn't do if you were completely blind, but you're not able yet to see fully. And it's like the disciples getting the true identity of Jesus is them moving from being completely blind to being partially sighted. It's a massive, important step, but it isn't the whole picture. But because they've got that important step, Jesus then reveals the rest. And the rest is, what is the reason that he came? What is his mission and mandate? Having discerned his true identity, Jesus then tells his disciples what is going to happen next. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and killed. And after three days rise again, he said this plainly. And friends, to take the word of of Jane uh, uh, this afternoon, these are two puzzle pieces that just didn't fit for the disciples. It's like, huh? We don't get it. Jesus, you've just told us that you're the Messiah, that you're the king to end all kings. You're the king who's gonna put everything right. You, you, You told us that you're nothing less than God himself, and now you're telling us that you are gonna be rejected, that you are gonna be arrested, and that you are gonna be executed. What are you talking about? This is crazy, this doesn't fit. 
Jesus, you don't understand. The moment we found out that you really are God has become flesh and dwelt amongst us, we've been checking out the awesome mansions in Jerusalem, thank you very much. And we realise like you're not just the Lord of Israel, but you're the Lord of the whole earth. So we've been checking out awesome condos in Rome, thank you very much. Because like we know that you're coming in and you're taking everything over and we're part of the inner circle. We're part of the cabinet, thank you very much. So, so we're really looking for like our our kind of cabinet kind of positions where we can get the right stuff. What are you talking about? In, in, in fact, it's so bizarre and it's so weird that actually Peter pulls Jesus aside and goes like, dude, what are you doing? Embrace your true identity. You are God Himself. What are you talking about that you're gonna be rejected? What are you talking about arrest? What are you talking about death on a cross? Are you mad? Don't do this. Embrace who you are. Show them who's boss. Establish yourself. You taught us to pray, Jesus, let your kingdom come uh, on earth as it is in heaven. So let's see your kingdom come. Do take charge. Show who's boss. Give us some... uh, Messiah flexing, please. And, and Jesus goes, get behind me, Satan, for you are not set in your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. If you're an Anchorman friend here, the fan here, this is like the Ron Burgundy moment. It's like, boy, that, that, that escalated quickly. That, that, that really got out of hand fast. It's like, whoa, we go from Peter getting Jesus as the Messiah to get behind me, Satan. It's like, whoa, 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 what's going on? But Jesus knew that he must suffer. He knew that he must die as a ransom so that we could be rescued and forgiven. Jesus is saying to Peter in no uncertain terms, Peter, you are partially sighted. Yes, you get my identity right. Yes, you discern that I am the true Messiah, but you don't understand my ways. You don't understand the very reason and mission and mandate for which I have come. You don't understand that the very reason I came to die, uh, to, uh, came to earth was to die on a cross for you. The very reason that I've come is to be a sin bearer for you. The very reason that I've come is to be the sacrificial lamb. The very reason that I've come was to be placed on a hook so that you could get off the hook. So firstly, we have an encounter. Secondly, we have an exchange. And finally, we have a foundation. Having confirmed his true identity, and revealed the very purpose of his coming, Jesus then calls the crowd together, not just the disciples now, he calls the crowd together and says to them, here's the bottom line, verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus calls the crowd together and he says, here's the gig, guys, deny yourself. Die to the ways of the world, radically follow me. And I can imagine that the puzzle pieces do not fit for this crowd. And my guess is that they groaned when they heard this. What do you mean deny yourself? What do you mean die to the ways of the world? What do you mean follow me wherever I go? 
this is hectic. This isn't what I was expecting. This isn't what I wanted. It's kind of people that are gonna fly out tonight to London Heathrow. And tomorrow morning at uh, 6 a.m., just before 6 a.m., it's gonna be, there's uh, 10 minutes to landing. Weather on the ground is overcast and raining and two degrees. And if you've been on that plane before, you'll know the plane groans because they've gone from 28 degrees to two degrees. They've gone from long summer days to very, very short days. And they don't want it, and so they groan. And friends, this crowd would have been groaning. Deny yourself, die to the ways of the world, follow me wherever I go. And if they were groaning 2,000 years ago, they're absolutely groaning in 2024, right? They're absolutely groaning in 2024. Maybe when you read the passage, you're thinking, man, buddy, are you gonna go there? Are we really gonna start 2024 with deny yourself, die to the ways of the world and follow me wherever I go? Are you really gonna go there? We're going there. We didn't choose a light and fluffy psalm for you at the start of this year. Sorry, guys. God was awesome to me last year. He's gonna be awesome to me this year. Praise God. All my dreams are gonna come true. Couldn't we have that psalm? Are we really gonna go with deny yourself, die to the ways of the world and follow Jesus wherever He went? Wherever He goes? Is that what we're gonna go with? I mean, like, this is mad. This is crazy. Tim Keller says that that, that modern people, the way they wanna organize their life is they look inward and they discern their wants, needs and desires and then they look outward and they say, world and everybody else, including God, arrange, rearrange yourself to fit in with me. Here are my wants, needs and desires. This is what I'm about. This is my plan. This is my vision. This is my purpose. Now rearrange yourself to fit in with me. In 2024, we are completely allergic to anybody telling us what to do. Not even God can tell us what to do. In fact, in a 2013 Stanford University uh, paper, they said that if you want to mobilize people to change their behavior, you must show how that change of behavior will benefit them personally. It's of very little use to try and motivate people to change behavior by looking at societal good. The example that they give in the paper is motivating people to recycle. They say, if you try to motivate people to recycle by saying, this will be of great benefit to your suburb or your city, it has no effect on people because they don't care about anybody else other than than themselves. And so you've got to show them how recycling will actually benefit them personally. Why is this a problem? Well, it's a problem because at the heart of maturing Christianity is a willingness to no longer live for ourselves, but to live for Christ. At the heart of maturing as a Christian is an ability to say no to your wants, needs, and desires, and to rearrange your life into fitting with Jesus. And friends, that's an exact flip of the way that we're trying to think and act and behave. We've been trained to to look inward and discern my wants, needs, and desires, and then tell everybody else to rearrange themselves to fit in with me. And now Jesus is honing in on us and saying, no, 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 deny yourself. It's like, does that even exist? Is there even a category of denial of self? Die to the ways of the world. Die, it's such a definite and final thing. Do I really wanna die? And follow me wherever I go. Well, Lord, I could follow you to the Bahamas. I could follow you to Bali. But really, wherever you go, I think that, that, that that's putting a very big scope on what I should be doing. 
But friends, if we haven't learned to say no to ourselves and yes to Jesus, then it's very likely that we are spiritually stuck. We don't see Jesus clearly enough. We may see his identity as the Messiah, but we haven't understood his ways. Friends, I think that there are lots of Christians today who are stuck and who have stalled. And we have a very watered down form of Christianity. And our watered down form of Christianity is this, God on our own terms. We will follow God to the degree that God enhances our life in the here and now. Please don't push this towards eternity. We're not interested in that. We're about maximizing our life right now. And that a degree to which God can maximize my life right now is the degree that I'll follow God. But the moment he deviates from that, the moment we've got sacrifice and denial and saying no and the dying to world stuff, thank you, I'm out of here, I'll leave leave that to somebody else, which is why we need help, we need breakthrough, we need an intervention. But the good news is Jesus wants to meet us, Jesus wants to break in. In fact, when we study the remainder of Mark chapter eight, what we discover is that Jesus knew uh, the contents of the Stanford University paper before it was even written. Because if you study the remainder of Mark chapter eight, what you discover is that Jesus appeals to our self-interest in order to encourage our followership. Jesus says to us, if you're trying to save your life, if you're trying to make your life all about yourself, your desires, your preferences, you're gonna lose your life. It's gonna end in a mess. It's gonna end in tears. But if you wanna save your life, live the life that God intended you to live, the way you were meant to live, the way that will bring lasting joy and, and, and eternal meaning, then lose your life for Jesus. Because if you lose your life for Jesus, you will find it and save it. And just in case we haven't got it, Jesus just turns up the heat. He just gives a, uh, like a crazy illustration. He says, guys, you don't believe me. You, 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 you're not into this. Well, let me just turn up the volume. Imagine, imagine that you gain the whole world. You get everything. Could you imagine this? Imagine that 2024 ends with you getting everything. In the whole world, you own everything. There are no longer stock exchanges in the world because there are no assets to trade because you own all the assets. You own everything. There are no asset managers anymore. There are no banks. You own the whole bang shoot. Jesus says, imagine that it gets as good as it possibly could get. He says, even in that scenario, if you've got all the assets in the world, but you haven't got me, you have lost. You are fatally flawed. It will not work out in the way that you wanted. Jesus is saying to us, beloved, my ambitions for your life are way better than your ambitions. Some of you will be infinitely happy if you've got 10% more assets than you've got now. Or if you just get the job, or if you just get the girlfriend, or if you just get the wife. You'd be like, that's it, my life is made forever. And Jesus is saying, I'm so much more ambitious for you than you are. You will settle for so little, I've got so much more to give you. C.S. Lewis commenting on this verses at the end of mere Christianity writes the following. He says, the more that uh, what we uh, now call ourselves out of the way and let him take over, the more truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are all waiting for us in him. The more I resist him or try and live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own upbringing, surroundings and natural desires. 
In fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I have never started and which I cannot stop. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your own ambitions and favorite wishes every day, death to your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Else where Lewis says, put first things first, then second things are not suppressed but increased. Friends, can I ask us a question at the start of 2024? Would we allow Jesus to pastor and guide us at the start of the year? Can I ask you this evening, what is your vision for 2024? Is your vision all about yourself? Making more, getting more, making much of yourself? Or is it about seeing Jesus clearly and really living for Him and for His purposes, truly making Him our first priority? Friends, Jesus lovingly and kindly says to us, even if every dream of yours for 2024 comes true, even if everything works out, even if every plan goes better than you could ever imagine, even if you gain the whole world, there will still be a flaw. And the more that you enter yourself, the harder that will be to see. Friends, Jesus got an invitation for all of us at the start of the year, and the invitation is this. Would you not just embrace my identity as Messiah, but would you embrace my mission and mandate? I've got so much more for you. Now, in a moment, I'm gonna give you some practical help about how you can do that. But before I do that, I just wanna say we can make a real big mistake by thinking that the big takeaway of today is, hey man, I, I need to lay down my life for Jesus. And we do, but that's not the big takeaway. We can only lay down our lives for Jesus because he has already laid down his life for us. You see, Jesus doesn't call us to lay down our lives while he goes along and has his nice holiday in the Bahamas. No, 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 no. Jesus himself submitted himself fully to the Father. And he didn't just figuratively lay down his life. He literally did. His body was broken and his blood was shed. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, Jesus is the King. But Jesus is a King with a cross. Jesus came to to sacrifice himself, to become our sin bearer, to die so that we can be ransomed, healed, restored, and forgiven. And it's only ransomed, healed, and restored, and forgiven people that can actually lay down their lives for Christ. We can't even do it without his prior work on the cross for us. The Christian message isn't obey, 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 and then maybe you'll be accepted. No, no, right on the front end, we are fully and wholly accepted because of the finished work of Christ. Therefore, we should follow him. Therefore, we should lay down our lives for him. Now, you may be here this evening and thinking, Stephen, 
wow, this sounds awesome. I kind of feel motivated in the moment, but I just know like even by this evening, this is gonna to be too hard. It, 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 it seems appealing, it, it, it seems nice, but I just, I just know myself. I, I know that actually I won't be able to do it come Monday morning. I just wanna offer you some ways that will help you to be somebody who can genuinely surrender yourself to Christ. And I wanna do that by just moving back to our opening scene, our opening encounter with the blind man, because I think there are four things in that passage that will help all of us here this evening genuinely surrender ourselves to Christ. The first thing that I want you to see about this blind man was that he had some friends that brought him to Jesus. And we are not gonna be able to reach spiritual maturity by ourselves. Maybe you've got some spiritual goals at the start of the year. Maybe you had some spiritual goals at the start of last year and it didn't quite work out. Friends, we cannot grow spiritually by ourselves. This isn't just a self-improvement project where it's just Jesus and me and we can work it all out. No, 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 this blind guy needed some friends to bring him to Jesus and we absolutely need that ourselves. You think, well, I'm not blind, I don't need some friends, which is an exact sign that you do have blind spots, right? You, you, you know, if you've got a blind spot is when you can't see it. I don't have any blind spots. Yeah, yeah, that, that's the first sign that you've got a blind spot. So firstly, we need friends. We need friends that will bring us to Jesus, not friends that will give us a good time and put on a great party, friends that would genuinely bring us to Jesus. Secondly, we need prayer. These friends bring their mate to Jesus and then they beg Jesus that he would touch them. What is begging? Begging is praying, right? Please, Jesus, touch my friend. He's blind, he needs you to break him. Please, 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 please. That's begging and they pray. You read so many of these uh, self-improvement books and, and, and people kind of get the book and they, they like try and work it through and it doesn't work out. Did you know why a lot of self-improvement books don't work out? It's because the reason why we need to be improved is because we can't do it and then we try and redo it and then we still can't do it and we don't realize, hey man, I actually need help here. I need God to help me change in key areas in my life. We need prayer. Friends, we are very good at giving advice, advice to each other. We're not that good at praying for each other. People are spiritually blocked because there are deep-seated things in their life that they need God to touch and break in. They need God to come in. Maybe there are things in your life that you've tried to change. I'm trying, I'm trying let, 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 let me give this another go. Let me, let me try again harder this time. And what you actually need to do is stop trying harder and actually pray more. And actually get those friends in and say, hey, can you pray for me? Can you help me? Can you get around me? I can't do this by myself. I need God to break in. God, could you break in? So firstly, friends. Secondly, prayer. Thirdly, honesty. Mark chapter eight turns on the honesty of the blind man. Let's think about this. This person is completely blind. Jesus spits in his face and prays for him. And he says, can you see anything? At this point, the whole story could have changed as follows if the blind guy just goes, it's a miracle, it's a miracle, I can see, praise the Lord, I can see, I can see, I can see. And he runs around rejoicing and he's happy as anything and he goes around hugging trees and cutting down people. That's what his life would have been, right? But he doesn't do that. He is brutally honest. Can you see anything? It's like, yeah, I can, I can, but it's like, it's, it's like people are like trees walking. I, I, I can see, but I can't see. And he's totally honest. 
And friends, we are not gonna change in the way that we ought unless we're willing to be honest. Friends, can we be honest about Cape Town? Cape Town lives on the fake it till you make it, right? Cape Town's so good with like, how are things going? Fine, how's your holiday? Awesome, everything's great, everything's fine. We're styling, we're doing brilliant, everybody's amazing. But the city isn't amazing, so where's the problem? We're the people that are having a hard time because everybody we're out is like, it's amazing and it's awesome, it's terrific, it's phenomenal, it's incredible. Instead of just being honest. We got a life group and everybody's fine. Can you imagine going to a life group and you ask somebody, so how's it going? It's like, well, to be honest, I'm going through a really difficult time. I'm actually really spiritually flat. Don't feel real, any genuine, affectional love for Christ. What happens if you go to a life group like that? I need to find another life group. I don't want people to be raw and honest here, thank you very much. I want them to be fine. Where's the life group where everybody's fine? Can, we, can I find that life group, please? But friends, we're not gonna change unless we're willing to be honest. Now, obviously, there's appropriate sharing and inappropriate, hear, don't hear what I'm not saying. But friends, if we are gonna change in the way that Jesus really wants us to, it's been really honest about where we're at. This blind guy was honest. It's like, hey, I'm partially sighted. I, the whole thing hasn't happened yet. And this leads me to the fourth thing. The fourth thing that we desperately need is a second touch from Jesus. Probably the most famous preacher of the last century, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that most of the Christians he meets are in-between touches. They've received the first touch, they get the true identity of who Jesus is, but they haven't yet had the second touch from Jesus that propels them and engages them into the mission and mandate of Jesus. In this passage in Mark 8, we get a guy who arguably said the greatest comment a human has ever made in human history. Peter saying, you are the Christ. It's the absolute key to everything, the identity of Jesus. Peter, the guy that hits the nail on the head, says the greatest comment is the same guy that by the time he hits Jerusalem is denying that he ever knew Jesus to probably a 12 or 13 year old. And yet, when we turn to the book of Acts, who's the guy standing up and preaching on the day of Pentecost? It's Peter. What happened? Gets the identity of Jesus right, denies ever knowing Jesus, preaching at Pentecost. What happened? Pentecost happened. Peter got a second touch. Peter got filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter encountered God and it propelled him into the very plans and purposes of God. You, some of you are discouraged, some of you are beaten down because you think you can't make it and you can't do it and you're not good enough. And what you desperately need is a second touch. You need God to come and to fill you and empower you to live the Christian life. You need to help, you need to invite him to help you. One of the names of the Holy Spirit is parakletos, which means he draws alongside to help. You are never meant to do the Christian life in your own strength. God wants to come and he wants to fill you with his spirit. He wants to empower you to live this Christian life. He wants to give you a second touch. Friends, we're like right at the start of the year and there are like two big ways that you can go. You can do 2024 on your own strength and you can run as hard as you can until you hit the wall, you will hit the wall at some point, or you can say, Lord, 
I wanna live 2024 for you, but I know that even that noble desire isn't possible on my own strength. And I desperately need a second touch from you. I need you to come and fill me with your spirit, empower me to live the life that you have called me to. The behind guy says, I need another touch. He gets another touch and it's a game changer. Friends, if we would come and humble ourselves to God, if we would come and consecrate ourselves to say, God, I wanna live for you, but even in living for you, I know that I can't do that on my own. I need Christian friends, I need prayer, I need to be honest, and I need a second touch from you to enable me to do that. Friends, if we would do that, if we would be that kind of community this year, don't you wanna be that kind of community? If we would be that kind of community, this year, it will be a transformative year. It will be a transformative year. And that's our desire for each one of you, that you would truly come into everything that Jesus Christ has got for you. You can live for yourself, but it's gonna end in tears. You can live for Christ on your own strength and it will end in tears. Or you can come and surrender to him. You can invite friends to help you. You can receive prayer. You can be honest and you can receive a second touch from Jesus. Can I